Hi, welcome to War Stories from the Womb. I'm your host, Paulette Kamenica. I'm a writer and an economist and the mother of two girls. Today we hear the second half of my conversation with Joy about how her experience with preeclampsia played out and her efforts to understand what happened to her, why her hospital care was so chaotic, and how she and her husband returned to a more stable place. I also include more from my conversation with Dr. Oprah and Dr. Sinke. Both doctors have done important work in the hypertension and preeclampsia space. We pick up Joy's story just after the birth of her daughter and just before she is told she likely has preeclampsia. Yeah, her birth weight was six, uh, six pounds, nine ounces. And considering the gestational age being at like 41 weeks, she was small. She was like at 10% or eight to 10% of, of what's normal. And that yeah. to me, was like, that's a sign of growth restriction. She yep. wasn't getting the, the nutrition from my placenta that she should have been. No one ever discussed that with me though. But when I saw the numbers, I was like, wow, she's, I thought she was going to be huge based on everything that happened. Yeah. Yes. And so now they have moved you into recovery, I'm assuming. And, and baby Adele is in the NICU. Yeah, she's in the NICU. And I moved to this fl- the fl- a floor or an area of the hospital where just NICU moms, which I didn't know was a thing either. But and I'm sharing a room, which I really hated, with another woman who had had twins. And they immediately want me to start pumping. So I have a breast pump. And the again, like the sleep was such at that point, I was so sleep deprived going into it. And then it's like one 30 in the morning and they're really wanting me to try to use the breast pump. And then I remember sharing, it was just like a curtain between us. Yeah. She's a twin mom and she is using the breast pump constantly. It's right by my head and I just cannot sleep. I brought earplugs and like an iPod trying to drown out all the sound. And then she'd have family coming in and out, you know, and it was just like so noisy and just hazy. And I think I, I think I made one visit to Adela before like they started to get more concerned about me. I didn't feel good that in those like 12 hours after it gave birth and they kept me on the IV pole for a while. I guess I was on the IV pole for a really long time, but they hadn't taken out the Pitocin. They had, I guess they keep that in after delivery to continue to shrink the uterus. But my nurse at that point, it was really the, that RN who picked up on things. And she was like, your blood pressure is high. Your blood pressure is high. And she kept telling me this. And I was like, you know, I don't know what it was. I don't know how to respond. I was like, you know, and, you know, and she just like, she'd come in and she was just concerned. She was concerned. She was concerned. And then, so she called the midwife and the midwife came in and she told me, oh, I might, you might have preeclampsia. And at that point I started crying, you know, and she's like, oh, did you think something was wrong? And I was like, yeah. I brought this question to Dr. Oprah and Dr. Sinke. Does the fact that many things can play into the risk of developing preeclampsia contribute to the difficulty in diagnosing this condition? And can you tell us some of the things that contribute to this risk? Yes, certainly. So there are many clinical risk factors, patients with a history of chronic hypertension, patients with a history of underlying renal disease, multiple gestations um, significantly increase the risk. A higher BMI increases your risk of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, a history of preeclampsia, a family history of preeclampsia. There are, you're exactly right, there are many things that predispose a patient to to this. There can also be types of abnormal placentation that can increase one's risk. There can be abnormal pregnancies that uh, increase the risk of preeclampsia, something called a molar pregnancy. And so the list is, is very long. It sounds like even though the things like abnormal placentation, which causes the release of certain hormones in your body, 
even though we know that that's the case, we can't measure those to a specific enough degree to divide the population of pregnant women into people who are sort of veering towards higher risk. Exactly. So that would be the dream, Paulette, is to be able to do that. The issue is that as they've studied it in clinical trials, it hasn't exactly panned out. And so they're screening a ton of women and the the sensitivity rate is pretty low. So whenever you look at what makes a good test as far as cost effectiveness and patient acceptability, you know, they don't quite meet that list yet. And I hope that within my lifetime, we do develop that. And, um, you know, they are working on on algorithms and including several different biomarkers into those equations. And so it it has improved over time. And and I think that that we will get there. And is it an issue of being able to measure the hormones or it's an issue of being able to identify them or all of the above? Yes, I I would say all of the above. Plus, what do you do with that information once you get that information? Because we, even if you're at high risk, then yes, we would recommend blood pressure measuring, but we measure everyone's blood pressure and screen every single pregnant patient for preeclampsia. And we don't have a good therapeutic other than aspirin to help reduce the risk for at-risk patients to develop preeclampsia. Another thing is she tested my reflexes and I had hyperreflexia, which like when she was banging my knee, like jumped really quickly, which is a sign that your nervous system is starting to get inflamed by the swelling and the edema from the preeclampsia. And, you know, an important part of preeclampsia that I learned after the fact too, is that that reversal process can really, that's when people get postpartum preeclampsia because your body reverses the whole process of relaxing your blood vessels. They go into this, you know, uh, overdrive. And that is when women can get really, you know, critically ill again. And um, And another interesting and important point I want to point out here is mm -hmm. that a lot of people who I have interviewed and who talk about preeclampsia say, Delivering the baby is the only cure. Yeah. And it's it's not actually a cure because you don't even yeah. have the baby or the placenta and you have yeah. preeclampsia. So right. Yeah. I, it's I, a I longer do, process, I, right? Yeah. I hate that when they call it a cure because that just sounds like an immediate improvement. And it's like, yes, I think you're to some degree for some people, maybe it is. And that's why it can be so deadly in postpartum because you just don't make the connection anymore. And you're at home and you're exhausted and you have, you know, you feel bad for different reasons. So yeah, so she was, it was really a nurse that I credit with being the one that was vigilant. And then at that point, it's like more chaos. It, it just went into like, just this crazy thing where they, I was in that NICU room and they decide, okay, I need to go get magnesium sulfate, you know, for the, the blood pressure. Oh, and my, when the midwife came in to visit me, they had done blood work and my liver enzymes at that point, they noticed were elevated. And so it was a combination of the hyperflexia, the liver enzymes, the high blood pressure, it's like pretty obvious at this point. And so they go and put me in this, it's really the recovery room where women from C-sections go, I guess, because even though this is a huge hospital in Manhattan, they didn't have a maternal ICU. They just stick women like me in this room with women who are right after our surgery. And there was one other woman in the room getting magnesium sulfate. And at that point, I think the high risk doctor at the hospital had taken over my case. I never met him, but he was like communicating with the midwife and they just couldn't decide back. They were just going back and forth on my case in terms of whether I should get the mag sulfate or not. They, at one point the the nurse was turning the pump on, I had the IVN and they were about to put the mag in. And like literally one of the medical residents threw open the double doors from where the doctors sit. It was like, stop the drip, stop the drip. <laughs> and like Brenda and I are like, what is going on? And they decide that like, oh, her liver numbers, the latest blood work shows 
And this is like a long span of time because it takes them a long time to do anything, right? Yeah. To put these orders yeah. in. I'm sitting in this hellish room where they've already taken my catheter out, but there's no bathroom in this room. And so I like drag my IV pull over, like cross the hallway, it back to the back of triage where like normal people use the bathroom. And I'm just, you know, bleeding profusely at this point and apparently have severe preeclampsia, you know, and like use, that was such an insult at that point. And I was at that point starting, I think to like kind of lose my mind a little bit. Cause it was just like, just everything was just crazy. That recovery room, I had a really shitty bed too. Cause it's like that post-surgery bed where you're just supposed to be on it for transfers or whatever. So, and it was a bright room. The whole thing was just so uncomfortable. And of course I have all these sim, I have, you know, I have racing heart rate. I have high blood pressure. I have these things that are going to make me feel more angsty. Anyway, finally they decide, okay, don't do the drip, but they keep all the stuff in me anyway, the IVs in case they need to do it. And they transfer me to another room. And it's like three in the morning and they put me in a delivery room. So I'm by myself at least for a little while, but I'm not, they, they have a cuff on me and it's measuring me up every 15 minutes. So of course I'm not going to sleep because I have a yeah. blood pressure cuff going on. And then it would beep. And then nobody would come in right away and turn the beep off. So I got, it got to the point where I would get up, go turn the beep off and get back in bed. And meanwhile, my daughter's in the NICU. And when I was in the recovery room, I didn't get to go see her, but maybe at that point I've seen her a couple of times. And Brendan's the one that's really like spending more time with her. Like even in that recovery room, I had that stupid breast pump with me <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, and I'm like, I have to do this. I have to do this. You know, like I felt like I'm going to be a terrible mother if I'm not trying to get, you know, milk to my daughter who's in the NICU. She needs it even more than a regular baby would, you know, all these, you know, this process of thinking that is kind of illogical, but you know, you're in a crazy situation. So at that point I'm in that delivery room and by myself. And I'm there for like eight or nine hours and they put me uh, back to a normal like shared room and Adela is discharged to me, but I am in no shape to take care of her. Like I'm a mess. And they put me on a drug called nifedipine or Procardia, which is the high blood pressure medication. And when I would take it, I would immediately, I think what was happening is my blood pressure was dramatically dropping really quickly. At the time I didn't know what was going on, but I felt like I was fainting and felt really terrified. And so I had to beg and beg that day too. Like, I need something else. I need, this is not work. This drug is not working for me. Can I please take something else? When you ask something like that in this hospital, it's a weekend too, which doesn't help. It's just like, you're being like like the most, you know, irritating patient ever. Like, how dare she, you know? And, and, but it was really like making me feel like I was having a panic attack. It was terrifying. And it turns out my dad had to take it because he has heart disease and he nearly killed himself because of the way it made him feel. It's like, it's just not a good drug in my family. And so they did eventually switch me, but it was just, that was just awful having to really advocate. I can't imagine how hard it is to be you in this circumstance. Just hearing this story from an outside perspective of someone who can see that you are seemingly deteriorating and people are just walking past you and not you're not mm-hmm. a priority yeah. is, yeah. is, is both unbelievably frustrating and, and makes me angry. And I'm terrified for you. This is how right. people die, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And like, I never had, you know, I never went into the super severe stuff, like had a seizure or anything, but you know, it, you do see how in the current system, how this can happen because especially when you're at an enormous teaching hospital and you were just a number at that point, there's so many cases and you're just being transferred all over the place. I lost sense of where I was in the hospital because then I was in that, I was in that shared room and 
and then having this like panic attack feeling. And I, at that point I asked for the different drug and then I asked for a private room. I was like, I really need to have a private room. And then having Adela with us, she's next to me. And I'm just like, not in a good condition to care for her. And we finally get to a private room and they, they had sent Adela to the nursery, but because it said breastfeeding in my chart, they didn't feed her. And so she showed up. Yeah. She showed up with me just, just like, you know, enraged hunger. And the nurse, you know, gave her a a bottle of formula and that immediately made things better. And that's really, I I breastfed for a couple of weeks, but that's when I was realizing like, okay, you know, formula might (laughs) be really important here. Um, but yeah, I was at that point, I was just a mess, like physically and mentally. I was so sleep deprived. It is hard to really articulate the extent of the sleep deprivation at that point, like six or seven days, including labor, how little quality sleep I got. I think it was incredibly minimal. And I think I, and I, that was another thing I had to do was ask and ask for Ativan, which when you're treating high blood pressure in these situations, like giving somebody Valium for preeclampsia, it's a pretty normal thing to do, but I had to beg for, I think it was Ativan. And then I really asked for an Ambien. But even given the circumstances, it's still very difficult to like relax and sleep. And my vitals were still not, you know, 100% normal. They're, they're keeping me, they keep keeping me in the hospital for monitoring because they're just not sure which way it's going to go, but I'm getting more and more exhausted and strung out as the days go by. And so I reach a point where I have like a full panic attack and I asked for if I could see a psychiatrist and I asked to see a psychiatrist because I thought that will get me the medication I really need, you know, like. Yeah that nobody's listening to me. And the midwife tells me, cause it's like a Sunday night. And she tells me like, the only way you can see a psychiatrist right now is if you say you want to kill yourself. Like that was, yeah, that was what, and she said that to me and Brennan was right next to me. And I was like, well, no, I don't want that. I'm fighting for my life here is what it was. You know, I'm yes. like, advocating I, I, I am about to kill you, but not. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah. I just, yeah. It was just astounding. It was really my introduction into broken healthcare system in the US. It was a really like big slap in the face and realization of how medical care is delivered these days. Yeah, that and that was that was in 2013, but I think I don't think there's been huge strides made since then. And then the next day a, a psychiatry resident showed up and he was so nervous and like you could tell he was terrified to interview this postpartum mom. Brendan was like he, he remembers saying like you were so articulate and just trying to explain like how, you know, they had just exhausted you, you needed help, you were you know struggling with anxiety, <laughs> like just, they just didn't know what to do with me. And then they, I also had um, GI doctors, I had several GI doctors come in and quiz me like, oh, were you taking Tylenol because of the liver problems? Were you this, that, this, that? And I had a liver ultrasound to make sure my liver was okay. And all these things would delay discharge, you know, we're keeping me because this would take hours and hours. And they decided, you know, oh, okay, well, her liver numbers are still pretty high. Let's do this ultrasound. And that would take forever. And I'd sit in a wheelchair down in the ultrasound room waiting for that, you know, just all takes hours each thing. And meanwhile, I'm separated from Adela and not, I didn't get food. I lost a lot of weight because of all these room transfers that was happening and like chaotic care. I just, you know, I didn't have enough food, didn't have enough water. Adele is not getting enough food. You know, it's just, yeah. I mean, in the process of saving my life, they nearly killed me is how I explain it because of how, you know, all this other, you know, these things that didn't have to happen, happening. There's a lot of chaos here. Yeah, yes, it was. Yeah, yes. And, and I, we should point out that your 
an articulate, educated white woman mm-hmm. in New York, mm-hmm. <laughs> in yeah. like a wealthy city. Right. Yeah. Nothing. Yes. No effect. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. It did, and I had private insurance, have pretty good insurance. Not a bit of Yeah. Yeah. So how do you finally get out of the hospital and how do they yeah. stabilize you? Yeah, it was the, the, having the liver ultrasound and saying that it was okay. I, and I was on a different blood pressure medication than the original one. And so it was still a little high, but stable. And I had been in there like six days and I think they just didn't know, you know, it was just like, let's get her out of here. And they discharged us at like 10 o'clock at night. And we had to go out through the ER. And I, that was one of those like memories that I'll never forget because we're, you know, Adele is in her car seat and we're waiting. we got to go meet the cab. And we're like walking through this ER full of people who have had accidents and drug addictions. And it's just, and I have my precious baby, you know, and I'm, I'm just, oh, and I feel terrible. And then having to go stand by like all the um, emergency vehicles waiting for our gypsy cab to show up. It was just so terrible. You know, it was just like the final insult to injury of getting me out of there. And I, at that point, I think I asked to stay another night because it was like things were finally calming down. If I could stay in the same room just one night, maybe I'll get some sleep and I'll feel safer because I'm in this hospital, you know, that sort of stuff. But no, they, they got me out of there. <laughs> yeah. And Brendan, and Brendan, another weird thing is Brendan had to go to CVS and get my blood pressure cuff and my blood pressure medication filled. Like while I'm in the hospital, he had to go to the corner CVS. Like the hospital didn't give us that, you know, <laughs> it's like yeah, the nurse had written bizarre. it on, on the back of a, a page page, like, okay, she needs a blood pressure cough. And this is the name of the medication, you know, da, 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 you know, while we're waiting to get discharged. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. Right. Like, exactly. Yeah. 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 And I'm at that point, just full, like very, very like in this weird uh, manic kind of state where I'm just pacing and angst and anxious. And just like, I remember trying to pack up all my stuff because I just wanted to get out of there. And, you know, Brennan was like, I think he told the midwife, he's like, look at her. She's not acting, you know, normal. And the midwife was like, she'll be fine when she gets home. She'll be fine. When she gets home. Yeah. It's surprising that they're kind of keeping you psychologically in that everything's fine, Ben, mm-hmm. even yeah. though nothing has been fine. <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. And it was, it was, I saw, so I had one midwife who delivered me. I had a different midwife who was there when they decided I had preeclampsia and then uh, a third midwife for discharge. So that was another issue with the you know delivery of care and not having a consistent person looking at me and seeing this, uh, you know, deterioration. Yeah, I feel like that's not so unusual to have mm-hmm. different people going in and out, but it yeah. has real consequence, right? Yeah, it's it not, does. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. not and for then, free. Right, exactly. If there's not consistent communication among these groups of people, yeah. So what's it like when you get home? It, oh, it's awful. I mean, it, that first week, luckily we had the insight to call my mother-in-law and she flew in from Minnesota because we didn't have any help arranged. And she was absolutely critical and like saving us because we needed a third person. I was in incredibly rough shape. Adele is like seemingly, she, she was very healthy at that point. Like she had been in the NICU for four days and it's, her chart said like suspected meconium aspiration syndrome. And they gave her antibiotics, like IV antibiotics. And she was on a CPAP machine to help her breathe. And like pretty quickly, you know, within four days, she was out of the NICU but I, I do want to speak to that because that wasn't something I was expecting to happen. And I didn't realize what a sci-fi environment that was like walking into the NICU for the first time. 
was traumatizing in its own way because like first they just, before you can even get to your baby, you have to go through all this sanitary procedures, which is fine, you know, like wash up, put on the gown, the gloves and all that. And then you walk, you step into this room and if you're not prepared for it, like, holy shit, there's some really tiny babies in there. There's all sorts of stuff going on. It's dark, you know, because it's what it, and it just was like, you know, they're all incubators. And I just remember being like, you know, just, this is another otherworldly experience I'm having. And I'm going over to Adela and, you know, fortunately she got better and better and, and, you know, and, and, and the nurses there were really great too. I'm sure they see, you know, distraught moms all the time. <laughs> so they knew how to handle this pretty well in the NICU. And like, you know, the other, some of the other, I mean, I feel like my nurses were pretty good the whole time for the most part, but yeah, that was just a, its own separate, like traumatizing experience. And I think because she was relatively healthy, like I, I, we, Brenda and I several times asked to speak with the doctor, like, you know, how's she doing? What's, what's the diagnosis? And I think, you know, in their mind, like this baby's fine. She's going to go home any day now, you know, like, but we were super concerned. We did had no idea what was going on, but they were, they were pretty dismissive towards us. That was frustrating. Yeah. I, I will say I spent time in the NICU too. And I, I totally get your brave new world mm-hmm. um, feeling to walking yeah. in there with all the isolates, yeah. which is unnerving. And my daughter had surgery the day after she was born and uh-huh. was released nine days later. Yeah. And like you, I was like, how, what <laughs> you're kicking us out? Like how, right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there is this sense of like, shouldn't we be here for a month and like really yeah. just nail yeah. it down that everyone's okay. But there's a very quick turnaround. They figure out what's wrong, fix them up and get them out the door. Right. Exactly. And there was no, like somebody saying, you know, okay, so she, you know, she came in with this. We think she had this, she's doing fine now. It's like, you know, oh, she's, she's, you know, she's going to be in your room now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was its own thing. And so, but when she get when we get home with her, she does really pretty well. We, uh, I'm doing like a mix of breastfeeding and formula feeding which I have very like mixed emotions about at the time. So I really, you know, went into it thinking I was going to breastfeed, but I'm struggling with it. Cause again, it's the sleep aspect to it, you know, just the newborn in itself, but the whole breastfeeding thing takes up a lot of time. And I know I, this first couple of days, I remember I was like laying down in the bed, breastfeeding her and Brennan is with me and he made me stop because I was about to pass out on top of her. I was so exhausted. He's like, you can't, this is not safe. You can't do this. But I was too tired to like stand up you know, it's like, we, this is why we have formula. And like my, another thing, my, the new blood pressure medication I was on, it worked. I had to double it a couple or I had to double it at least once because my blood pressure got higher once I got home and they were making, that's another thing that was going on is I'm having to constantly monitor my blood pressure and measure it and track it on a chart and then call it in. And so by like two or three days later, it was starting to go up again. So they made me double that medication and I had to go in and get another uh, liver a blood, a blood test done, you know, and this is all exhausting to do when you have a tiny newborn at home to get yourself over to like the quest and get, yeah. and you're still, and you have all, you know, and you're very postpartum in terms of like blood coming out of you and, you know, just the whole physical part of it to go and get weight and get your blood drawn and find out if your liver's okay and make these calls into the doctor and like sit on hold while you wait to speak and convey the numbers, all that sort of stuff. So exhausting. They doubled that medication, but that medication they don't use it as a first line treatment because it is have psychiatric side effects. Like it's one of those ones that's very effective, but it, it basically depletes your dopamine. That, that's what it's doing. It's supposed to do that, but that the psychological impact of not having dopamine 
is really bad. And so at that point I start to slip into bad, like postpartum depression and anxiety. I think it was a combination of the medication and what I had been through. And then there was a trauma background in my history, like all of these things, you know, coming together. I had a psychiatrist that I had been seeing prior to having a baby and he was very good and very responsive. And I saw him and once he put me on, he put me on a drug called Wellbutrin, which is a dopamine. It's not an SSRI, but it works on dopamine. I got so much better so quickly. Like once I got on that drug, it was really amazing. And I, and I could stop taking the high blood pressure medication. Things really rapidly improved for me, but that took about a month. And so that first month was just the most challenging of my life for sure. Yeah, that that sounds sort of unbelievable. And having had preeclampsia, are there long term consequences for that, or how, how does that how has that been managed since the pregnancy? Yeah, I mean, the first year my blood pressure stayed kind of high, and I remember trying really hard to eat a low sodium diet in those first few weeks. I lost a lot of weight. You know, I, very quickly I was fitting into my old clothes, like within like four weeks of delivering, and so you know, the, the physical recovery after I reached that point where I was on the new medication and my blood pressure was okay, that I didn't need to stay on the drug anymore. Physically, I think I did pretty okay. I brought this issue to Dr. Sinke and Dr. Oprell. My sense is that there are long-term consequences of preeclampsia that don't necessarily resolve. It, so first, is that true? And if so, why? We know that preeclampsia increases a patient's risk for future cardiovascular disease, potentially on the order of threefold, depending on what systematic review and meta-analysis that you look at. But your question of why, we still don't entirely know why, right? So there is vascular remodeling. There's probably some underlying biomechanism that that leads to, to this. But I think another way to look at it is to look at pregnancy as a stress test. And so right. if a patient already had an increased risk of cardiovascular disease in the future, when they get pregnant, pregnancy kind of revealed that they developed hypertension or it kind of raises the flag of, hey, you, there is a higher risk that in the future you're going to develop cardiovascular disease. So I think there's still a lot of work to be done in this area. I think blood pressure control is a really important aspect of that. And that was one of Dr. Oberil's landmark trials, the SPRINT trial in non-pregnant patients showing that tight blood pressure control really leads to better long-term outcomes. Are there recommendations that you give to mothers of preeclamptic births? Yeah. So first of all, the immediate is um, blood pressure control. And so this is where, you know, Dr. Oprah runs a hypertension clinic. And so for patients with hard to manage um, hypertension, it's really important to get them plugged into a good primary care doc or a cardiologist who can help manage that. The second thing is going to be kind of long-term cardiovascular disease surveillance. And so in, in Alabama, many of our patients have coexisting diabetes, and it's really important that we manage the sugars and manage the blood pressures to try to give the best outcome. So in thinking about other modifiable cardiovascular disease risk factors, do they smoke? Are they overweight? How's the cholesterol? Do they have depression? Does it need treated? You know, so there, so making sure that anything that is modifiable is modified is really important. And so from an OBGYN perspective, we are grateful to Dr. Oberil and her colleagues for, for taking that on. The seemingly simple and obvious thing is getting them to measure their own blood pressures and monitor them over time. And actually, there's ongoing studies done in collaboration with some people in public health here to determine what's the best way to monitor your blood pressure, what times of day, 
do we need a device that communicates with the doctor's office or can the, the patient do it by themselves? How many determinations you need to make an adequate assessment of what's going on? That's very important because that involves really everybody in the world, not just pregnant women. And it's an active area of research now. Seems like the simplest thing in the world, but most people don't do it very well. And, and that's a really important point, that preeclampsia really is a disease of prenatal care. And so when you look at the maternal mortality in low-middle-income countries where patients may not have access, then it can often lead to eclampsia, which is a seizure. And it is much less common for it to progress to eclampsia um, in high-income countries, but we do still see it. And so the importance of prenatal care and regular blood pressure monitoring, like Dr. Oprah was saying, is really important because even though, sure, anxiety can increase your blood pressure, if you compare it to your first trimester blood pressure when you first are seen, you can see huge changes in your systolics and diastolics. And so even it makes us a little bit leery when it gets chalked up to anxiety because we may be ignoring um, something bigger underlying, like like pregnancy. But I was left with a big mental scar and at some point that tra transitioned into anger in a sense of like, you know, really wanting to figure out what the hell happened. So I know from your, I think I know it from your Cosmo article about tracking through your medical mm -hmm. records, mm -hmm. which I think is a important and interesting thing to do, although potentially upsetting. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And if you don't, like I have, a, I have a medical journalism background. I have pretty high medical literacy with, you know, medical terminology. And I had to, I had to do, I mean, I had to basically go into reporter mode for that and like order my daughter's NICU charts, which was separate from my triage chart, which was separate from my hospital stay chart. And then my um, pregnancy chart, you know, I had five or six different sets of charts, had to pay money for each of them. Like, I think I spent around $400 getting copies made. Wow. It was, yeah, it was a huge file. And you have to kind of make, try to find a narrative, you know, out of this and like look through. And, and then it also became like one like ridiculous thing to me, I remember was how like seven different times in the hospital, according to my chart, nurses came and talked to me about the importance of doing my Kegels. <laughs> and it was clear to me that they were just hitting, hitting a button. Like they, because they weren't sure if they were going to discharge me. They were like, have me on the discharge path. You talked to her about this. You talked to her about this. Yes, yes, yes. They put that in the chart. And then they're like, oh, wait, we might keep her a little bit longer. So the next nurse went in and hit all that. You know, I was like, nobody talked to me about <laughs> Kegels. If they would have done it seven times, that would have that would have been insane. You know, so there, that was taking up a lot of the documents. It's just like ridiculous repetition, too. And then there were a lot of other lab numbers. There's the obvious ones like the liver enzymes. But there were some other markers of preeclampsia that I was trying to dig into and figure out, you know, they were elevated and, you know, what that meant and. I was really trying to figure out like how close did I get it to like a really serious event, like a seizure. You know, I just didn't, I don't know how close I got um, at any point. Yeah. But I was just very, very frustrated and, you know, just determined. And, and that, and like, I realized that my situation, which fared a lot better than a lot of women, but it was emblematic of what's happening and why there's an increase in maternal mortality and morbidity in the U S it's not because, I mean, women to some extent are getting sicker, or they're having babies later, or they're having, they might be have, you know, be overweight. And those things don't help. But that was at the time, that's what people were saying was the problem is that oh, women are overweight, and they're giving birth later. And, and they're really patient blaming. And I was like, I was, you know, I was 36. But you know, that 
the preeclampsia is solvable, it's treatable, you know, and so just seeing how the, the care was delivered, it's like, it's no wonder this is happening. There's something else happening here. So I was one of the first journalists to write about it. It ended up in Cosmo because I wasn't a newspaper journalist at that point. I was working for an environmental nonprofit. I had a hit in medical journalism background, but at that point I wasn't like dialed into any newspapers. So I had a friend who worked at Cosmo and I pitched it to her and they took it. But I, you know, later NPR did a huge series on the problem. And I talked to the reporter on background and gave her a lot of my sources and all that sort of stuff. And that's when it really became like more of a national topic of discussion. But, you know, I feel good that I did get that going, at least in some way, you know, that there needed to be a broader look at it instead of just what's wrong with women. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. 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 I totally agree. The period that immediately follows birth is so tricky because so many things are going on. And although doctors know a lot about pregnancy, there's still so many things that they don't know. I would love to see in the future some kind of APGAR for women. Yeah. Like there is for babies, some kind of graded system where if you meet some criterion, like three high blood pressures in a row, you get you get more attention. And we're not part of medical studies, typically, you know, been ignored yes. in research. And yeah. Yeah. And I can um, see why pregnant women don't want to sign up for research, right? You don't want to be the guinea pig while you're pregnant, but it's really useful if you can be. It, it totally is. I, I totally agree. This is another interesting issue I brought to the doctors. I've read in many places that it's very difficult to do research involving pregnant women, but it seems like with this CHAP study, you've been able to overcome this issue. Well, CHAP was a multi-centered trial, but the PI was Alan Tita, who's uh boss of my colleague here, the major researcher in pregnancy hypertension. And the study enrolled about 2,400 hypertensive women were pregnant, and they were randomized to either treatment with uh, extended-release labetalol or nifedipine or not, just observation, unless the pressure went very high, uh, like a greater than 180 over 120, which was the previous standard. And the treatment group did a lot better. The blood pressure was lowered to a goal of less than 140 over 90. And there were significant improvements in many areas. The concern had been, if you give these pills, is it going to drop the blood pressure too much? Is the baby going to die? Or are you going to have a problem? There were very few adverse effects of the treatment. So it encouraged the people who run the OBGYN world immediately after the study uh, was available that was published in the New England Journal, issued statements about that it's safe to treat pregnant women with hypertension and with these particular agents and uh, to a goal of less than 140 over 90. So I think it's revolutionized the world of obstetrics and gynecology. Is that true? Absolutely. So is that, does that mean that, that we're treating these people so they don't get preeclampsia or we can use it for people who already have preeclampsia or both? So, yeah, so that's a great question. So the trial really focused on patients with chronic hypertension. They have a very high risk to develop preeclampsia. And so they found that when you treat them, there was a decreased risk to develop preeclampsia with severe features. And severe hypertension is considered a severe feature. So it does make makes biologic sense that if you are aggressive in blood pressure control, then you can help reduce the chance that they develop stroke range blood pressure. We still don't have excellent data on blood pressure management for patients with preeclampsia. Dr. Oprah is graciously mentoring me as we 
launch a randomized trial to try to provide some data in that area. So I hope in a few years, Paulette, we can report back to you on that. But uh, the the purpose of CHOP per se wasn't necessarily to prevent preeclampsia, but that was one of the effects that it reduced the risk of preeclampsia with severe features, including these these high stroke range blood pressures. Uh, so that seems completely amazing and kind of mind-blowing. And my guess is the number of women who come to pregnancy with hypertension is not small. Yeah, you're exactly right. And really a, just a huge shot. Dr. O'Parell and my um, another one of my mentors, Dr. Tita, worked for over a decade to, you know, through all the concept development and grant submission and seeing through all of the development. <laughs> um, right. You worked for a very, very long time to make this happen. And it is important to make sure that we protect pregnant patients in research, but we also need to include them in research so that way we can take better care of them. And and that's what they did for over a decade. Uh, so your daughter now is 13? She's nine. She's nine. nine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what's she into? <laughs> she is into volleyball and dance and has recently, much to my chagrin, discovered YouTube and likes making little YouTube videos. But yeah, she's doing really well. And, you know, we did decide not to have, I don't know if you ever had like a a turning point where like, okay, we're not going to have any more children, but due to what happened to me and then some external things that were happening in my family, it just was never like, felt like a good time to go through this whole process again. I was of course terrified too, Yeah. but I, we were very, very happy with, with our daughter and like, we didn't feel this huge need to have more children. Like it was, we were happy with what we had and and felt grateful, you know, to have what we did have. You guys are super lucky. You are, Mm -hmm. your daughter is, your Mm -hmm. husband is, right? That you made it through so well, given all the places where, you know, the institutions fell down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yes. And I've seen it happen to my mom with her mental health. It's the same kind of chaotic care or lack of care. It happens all the time in different ways. It's not just labor and delivery and OBGYN, but it's happening. So is that the focus of your writing now or? Yeah, the, the book, I, I, certainly this story, the pregnancy story will be part of it, kind of the midpoint, but it, yeah, the recounting of really my mom's story has been the bigger issue in my life. This was something, it was, t- you know, I didn't, did not have a great birth experience, ended up writing about it. It was traumatic. I definitely had PTSD, needed psychiatric treatment for it outpatient, but you know, I needed help, but my mother's situation just because how chronic and it started right before I got pregnant and then it continued after and just my journey to understanding what happened with her too. So that's um, what the, the book is hopefully going to be about. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so okay. much for coming on and sharing yeah. your story. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, and thank you for your work on preeclampsia. Yeah. 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 It's a fascinating, yeah. The, their attempts to understand it. Preeclampsia foundation seems like a great organization working really hard, you know, especially among black women doing a lot of advocacy and awareness. They're disproportionately affected by it. So hopefully one day we'll have a better understanding of it. Hopefully if Adela decides to have children, she goes into it with more knowledge than I did. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. So one of the other things you were going to share with us is patient and family resources. For people maybe at risk or people who've experienced preeclampsia, where can they look and what can they do? 
Absolutely. And Dr. Oprah is on the board of the Preeclampsia Foundation. The Preeclampsia Foundation has excellent family and patient resources. Many of these patients, they may not know other people who have had preeclampsia. And so to be able to access an online community, um, information about uh, birth-related trauma, um, I think it's very helpful for, for them to be able to do that. There is also a really good CDC campaign called Hear Her, and there's both patient, family, and provider information. And so if a patient we always want to empower our patients to speak and to advocate for themselves. And if they have symptoms and they feel like they're not being heard, it, there's some nice material to kind of guide some of those conversations. That's really interesting because Joy said she was trying to advocate for herself and she felt like her concerns weren't heard. It will be useful and interesting, probably both for doctor and patient do you have a sense of the you know magic words you should use, some kind of key phrases or what you can do to so that you feel like your voice is heard? Yeah, some older doctors have a tendency to blow young patients away, blow them off, say, you know, if you're just nervous, it's going to go away. Um, and that's not true. I really appreciate Dr. Oprell sharing this perspective. It actually means a lot to hear a physician verify that sometimes this happens. And it's consistent with Joy's experience with the many midwives that saw her. With that said, I'd like to thank Joy so much for sharing her story. Everyone comes home from the hospital after their first birth and is immediately overwhelmed and exhausted, which makes it common for whatever they experienced in the hospital to be quietly buried in all of the work of caring for a newborn. But the only way to make progress and get better care is to talk about and examine the experiences we've been through. I'm grateful to Joy for sharing her experience, and I'm also really grateful to Dr. Oprell and Dr. Sinke, both for their time and insight that they gave us today, and for their important research, which is dramatically improving the lives of pregnant people everywhere. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another inspiring story.